Little honey bees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table, butter beans, peas, beets and chard, chickens running in the yard, catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Dripping black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee Farm Table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food and agriculture, often with that Mountain South Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the Southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Umami. U-M-A-M-I. That's the word of the day today. It is a word that describes a specific savory taste that is unlike any other taste. It is one of the core fifth tastes, including sweet, sour, bitter, and salty, and umami means essence of deliciousness in Japanese. Its taste is often described as a meaty, savory deliciousness that deepens flavor. Today, we are setting the table with a good old-fashioned morel mushroom foraging expedition in search of a wild food that delivers that umami taste. My guests are Chris Berger, farmer, creative director, and co-founder of Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. Chris was kind enough to invite me on a morel hunt a few days ago for this mushroom that only appears around Tennessee in a small window of time from late March through the first weeks of April every year. We'll also be joined by Chef Robert Allen today. He'll join us in the kitchen of Century Harvest Farm Foundation, and he'll share how he cooks morel mushrooms and the foods that he pairs them with. And we'll also get to hear the second installment of a brand new addition to the show, Garden Variety with Kelly Smith Trimble. Kelly is an author, gardener, and editor living in Knoxville, Tennessee. And today, she has a really neat segment about corn. Thank you so much for your great company here today. I really, really appreciate you tuning in here with us. So pull up your chair to this big Tennessee table and let's talk about morel mushrooms. This is so fun, Chris. Thanks for taking me. Well, thanks for your interest. I'm so glad that... Uh... Yeah, so glad you were able to come join us. So, anytime they're uh, they're kind of starting to appear, it's always just sort of a beautiful spring day. You know, a cool morning, kind of just a nice time to be outside in East Tennessee. You know, Aww. and there are about three different varieties that grow around here. 
and you know the black ones come first and the gray ones and the yellow ones come last one of the key words for today is microenvironment or microclimate and this this is a microclimate so basically we kind of sneak into a place like this and out here it's real dry and sunny and in here it's you know it, we have this uh, kind of dead leaf litter we got this cool moist soil yeah and um we're right under this this species this woodbine and morels really really like to grow in the shade of woodbine they just when when you're talking about you know the the things that grow that kind of do the cleanup work in in, in an ecosystem you know the bacteria and and fungi sort of a you know an ass for every saddle uh, as they say you know there for every kind of molecule in an ecosystem there's you know a bacteria and a fungi specific species that develops you know the enzymes that break down that particular compound and so uh, for for morels you're looking for specific species of plants and those are kind of your indicators and when you have this lovely little kind of new real green sort of yellow green growth on these on these woodbine you can kind of peek under the uh, you know into the shade and and sometimes you'll you know you'll find them under the under uh th this is I mean, it's just honeysuckle, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it kind of comes in a few different forms. There's sort of the viney form, and then there's this sort of more shrubby kind of form. And um, But that's where they like to be. Uh, the little gray ones, this is what we're looking for today. It's, it's, they're just tiny little gray things, and uh, they just love they just love this woodbine, the shade of the woodbine. It looks like a little umbrella, you know, like a like a fresh green umbrella over their little howl. That's exactly how you start to see this when you are kind of putting your goggles on. When you mushroom hunt, you say put your eyes on, you, you gotta find your eyes, you know. You have to slow down slow enough to find them because especially the little gray ones, because they're, they're so small, you sort of have to adopt this very, very kind of bizarrely slow pace, which is so drastically different from everyone's kind of usual day-to-day. -day. So it's kind of refreshing. It's a, it's a nice change of pace. We are all moving way too fast. Yeah, yeah, So it's like a, it's this kind of lovely, you know, exercise in deceleration. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just mosey and kind of peek around. But, Sounds good. So you can kind of feel like out in the sun, you yeah. know, out here. Um, you know, if, if you were kind of putting your mushroom hat on, it's not really a fun mushroom place to be. But if you sort of ease on towards the creek, it just sort of gets cold, cooler and cooler and cooler. That's, you know, that's where they kind of, they, they like the, you know, they, they love the f sort of a, a little plain that gets, that gets flood water, you know, every, every few weeks in spring. And typically after a big rain, sun comes out, that's when they sort of emerge. That's when they, you know, kind of try to, it's very interesting because, you know, what they're trying to do is, is that, you know, they, they have these, um, they like, they like it where the leaf litter is really kind of well rotted and well decomposed and they don't stay in a place very long so when they when those floodwaters come what they're trying to do is release a bunch of spores and send their spores downstream and reproduce somewhere else colonize a new area yes. so it's an ancient ancient adaptation um, but yeah i mean just like this this little grassy uh sort of area and this leaf litter this is just kind of a you know a real good uh real good place to kind of begin looking They're kind of camouflaged just like that. You know, they, 
they look like a like a sycamore pot or a or an old uh, you know like a a year old uh, you know walnut that's kind of started to rot that have those sort of like ridges and indentations and kind of a pine cone looking thing so they have a they have a you know an excellent camouflage system that's why you gotta slow down slow enough to get it you know what I mean so if you go morel hunting are there so they're like little progressive waves of different kinds, I guess? Right, yeah. So it, it happens over about three weeks, okay. maybe two weeks. It just depends on the rain and mm-hmm. and kind of how hot it gets and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But basically the, the black ones will come first, and then the gray ones, and then the yellow ones. And there's some overlap depending on the weather and where you are. Um, but around here, that's kind of, you know, basically the last week of March, um, mm-hmm. you know, to... You know, to about the you know about the second week of of April, you there that's all that's all you get. This is just just right. You know, this nice rotted leaf litter, not a just a little bit of sparse plant matter, not a whole lot. Good shady place. You, kind of the one of the keys is dappled sunlight. You know, oh. where you get little sun part of the day, but it's not totally shady. You still have some of that evaporative kind of action. Yes. Um, and you know, and there's the. Still a little bit of little bit of solar energy, kind of activating that that, uh, that movement of water. There are a few there are a few little things, kind of little cues. It the morels as they 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 kind of grow up in the same crib as the uh, as a lot of other little things in the woods, you know. Like for example, the they kind of come out right as the right as the may apples are sort of spreading their umbrella. You know what I mean? People are sort of obsessed with with time and they sort of have their own little daylight savings and you know spring brack and all, all that sort of nonsense but you know but think you know in the real world things just happen when they happen you know what i mean right about the time the trilliums start to pop up i reckon that's exactly right mm-hmm. they, that's a that's a good companion species mm-hmm. as well if you're if you see may apple and trillium you're you're hot on the trail I think you're being nice, and I think you've probably seen one already, and you're just letting me go see it. Well, it's important. That, I mean, we could be out here all afternoon, you know, but you got to get your eyes on, you know? Eyeballs on. I know, I've got to... It's like, just fun to see you, how close you can actually get for you. Just, they're, they're just such good hiders. That's that's good. I always go with the kids, and my littlest is, is three, and she likes to find them, but she, but she needs a little help, and so we do hot or cold, you know? And she adores that. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you for a hint. Is it keep, really little? Keep going. Okay. Keep going. Just a few more feet. I see them. <laughs> I see them. Yeah, right. Fun, huh? Them. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Are there mushrooms that look like morels but aren't morels and will, like, really they're, they're, make you sick if you yeah, eat them? Yeah, there are false morels. The Morels have a... Uh, this really kind of wonderful symmetrical quality. Um, when, when we go to the kitchen, I'll show you. But when you when you slice them down the middle, they really make kind of a pure symmetry. Uh, the false ones are really they have a crumpled physiology mm. and um, a more kind of a red hue. And um, so when you cut them down the middle, they don't form sort of a true kind of symmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other ways to tell, but that's kind of the easiest and. Uh, and the other way to tell is is your gut. If you're not sure, don't eat it. You know. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah, yeah. There's a in the in the world of mycelium. You know, us us you know mushroom hunters. There there's a there's old mushroom hunters and there's bold mushroom hunters, but there's no old bold mushroom hunters. <laughs>
I have never myself tasted one, but they're supposed to taste a little fishy, like huh. when you cook them. Yeah, they're uh, they're savory. People, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of you know what I want to share mm-hmm. with you up in the kitchen is sort of that that umami characteristic, which yes. is you know kind of mysterious to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, morels are sort of this, you know, again, just sort of that real um, kind of privileged glimpse into that you know into that sort of flavor profile. So. Um, Yes. Yeah, but they are, you know, some people, like vegetarians, you know, are kind of famous for eating them instead of, um, you know, instead of meat. They have a very, very kind of a lot of umami, a lot of sort of savory kind of characteristics that you, mm-hmm. that, that sort of uh, satisfaction you get from, from meat is kind of, it, it, it'll deliver that for sure. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. Today we are setting the table with morel mushrooms and that umami flavor. Morels are a fun treat to forage in the rare window of time, annually from March through the first weeks of April here in Tennessee. My first guest has been Chris Berger, who kindly invited me to morel hunt this past week on his land in Greenback, Tennessee. Chris is a farmer, creative director, and co-founder of Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. Up next is Chef Robert Allen. He'll cook these morels that we found, and we recorded this visit with him in the kitchen located on the farm at Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. Chef Robert is formerly the executive chef of a fine dining establishment located in Lenore City, Tennessee. He'll let us know how he cooks these morels and uh, what he likes to pair these mushrooms with. I was wondering about that, if you wash or don't wash morels. What's your thought? (laughs) I feel like the best way is to just do it kind of gently in a pool of water. Because as you can see, for the most part, they're going to float to the top, but all of the dirt and grit and stuff that you don't want will just sink right to the bottom. So you're left with the the good stuff. And a little bit of water will help hydrate them. Oh, that's right. If they're a little dry, then they'll have the benefit of a little bit of water. Do you like cooking with morels? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'd say this area of the country is just so prime, you know, to be able to get these fresh right out of the, the ground is just a, a treat that not everybody gets to have around the country, so we're definitely lucky. How would you describe the taste of a morel? Um, it is definitely one of the most earthy flavors, a natural earth flavor that, that you can come across, and um, you can kind of taste the nutrients and the uh, the, the the value of all of the the vitamins that you're getting um, when you're when you're eating these morels so much different than just kind of that water taste from a, a white button mushroom. How do you cook with morels? Uh, one of the best ways to preserve kind of the natural flavor and some of that shape that we're going for is just going to be really a nice hot pan. Oh. Um, we want to use a nice uh, high temperature cooking oil, a nice high smoke point cooking oil uh-huh. uh, so we'll even go right into this cast iron that we've got here so we don't want to let this oil get all the way hot to where it's smoking because uh-huh. we'll start to get a little bit of burnt flavor yeah we do want to dry these off just a touch being very gentle uh-huh. not to break them so we're really going for it it's basically a pan fry okay
lot of people have a hard time not fidgeting with the pan, but it's it's really better to let them set and really actually cook before you start moving them around. People think that you need to have a lot of action and you always jumping the pan around and moving it around, but really patience is a virtue when it comes down to it. talking about the umami flavor profile and will you describe description of that flavor would you and that's that's kind of the um that's the the problem with the whole umami situation right is it's it's that certain flavor that you just can't always put your um that you can't always put your finger on mm -hmm. and a lot of that comes from the sort of alternative cooking styles of fermentation um <clears throat> And, and it's really something that your your tongue is noticing um, that you it might not be like cherries or um, you know, strawberry or something that's very easy to identify, but your body is kind of telling you this is something that, um, like a mushroom or meat in particular, it could be dangerous if you're not eating the right sources. So I think personally that and this is definitely not scientific or anything of that nature but to me it's kind of putting your your mind or your body on alert that this is something that you should be careful with something that you should you know take into consideration what you're what you're eating here so you are listening to the tennessee farm table podcast and broadcast today we are setting the table with morel mushrooms and that unique umami flavor profile. These morel mushrooms are a special annual treat to forage in this rare window of time every year from late March through the first few weeks of April in Tennessee. I want to thank Chris Berger and Chef Robert Allen for having me on this morel hunt and cook at Century Harvest Farms Foundation. More information and the good work they do to help people in the community at centuryharvest.org. And I've placed links and pictures and the podcast of this show and ways to get in touch with each one of my guests on my website, tennesseefarmtable.com. Up next is a new monthly contributor to the Tennessee Farm Table, author, editor, and gardener Kelly Smith-Trimble. She makes her home in East Tennessee, and she's currently the Senior Digital Editorial Director for HGTV, where she answers vegetable gardening questions in a social video series called Dig It. That series has more than a million views collectively. She has also been a writer and editor for Southern Living, the National Park Foundation, and Bonnie Plants. And her vegetable garden was featured in the June 2020 issue of Southern Living Magazine. And that is some serious Southern woman credibility right there to have your vegetable garden featured in Southern Living. She was born in Knoxville and has spent her life in various parts of Southern Appalachia. And the subject of Kelly's garden variety segment today is corn. When discussing topics for this garden variety series recently, my husband Derek asked, well, does corn grow on Rocky Top? And I thought, well, that's a good lead. This isn't really a story about Rocky Top, but let's get the facts as straight as we can from the start. 
Rocky Top is a peak in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park on the border with North Carolina. The town Rocky Top in Anderson County, north of Knoxville, was renamed in 2014 from Lake City, a name it took on in the 1930s when TVA came in. The town name before that was Coal Creek. These name changes, in a way, serve as a timeline for development in the area. But back to corn. There are four categories of corn. Field corn, sweet corn, popcorn, and ornamental corn. Their differences have to do with the toughness of their seed coating and the amount of starches and sugars in the kernels. Field corn, which has a tough shell, is closest to the original domesticated varieties, and there are two subcategories of it, dent corn and flint corn, both of which can be dried and ground into cornmeal. Popcorn has a hard shell but higher starch content inside, which expands under pressure. Sweet corn obviously contains more sugars, and it's the one we love to grill or just eat fresh straight off the cob. Ornamental corn, though edible, usually just shows up as a key player during decorative gourd season. Amy, the host of this show, gave me a few ears of corn the first time I met her, so I knew we'd be friends from here on out. The variety is Webb Watson, a Tennessee heirloom dated to 1846 in Bedford County, Tennessee. The county seat of Bedford County is Shelbyville, which is where my parents lived for just a couple years after getting married, which has little to do with corn. At any rate, Webb Watson heirloom corn is a dent corn variety, so it's best for making meal or grits. It became a favorite of famed Southern chef Sean Brock after he was introduced to it at Blackberry Farm, and it's been described as tasting earthy, like mountain water, by Glenn Roberts, the farmer and miller of heirloom Southern grains at Anson Mills. I took the corn Amy gave me and removed the kernels to store them in a mason jar. I've made cornmeal from them, grinding the corn to flour in my Vitamix blender, and then a simple cornbread, no wheat flour added. I don't mind a toothy cornbread, so I love the taste and texture, but for most people, the Webb Watson variety is probably best for making grits. So I also made grits with the Webb Watson corn. Again, I ground the dry kernels in my Vitamix, but to a gritty texture. Then I cooked according to the recipe on the Anson Mills website. It was perfect. Corn is authentically American, as in all of the Americas, not just the United States. It was domesticated 10,000 years ago by Aztecs and Mayans in Mexico and Central America, and then moved northward to be grown by indigenous tribes throughout North America, including the Cherokee in East Tennessee. The earlier corn is called teosinte, and the seed head looks more like a typical grass than today's corn varieties do. You can learn about all of this at the Townsend Visitor Center, which I visited recently on a rainy day with my nephews who were in town from Nashville. My nephew Peter, a young foodie, said his favorite part of the exhibit was learning about the corn and other foods that Native Americans and then later mountain settlers grew to stay alive. He was particularly interested in the method of growing called Three Sisters, in which corn, squash, and beans are grown together in one of the best known examples of companion planting. Here's how it works. Squash, grown on the ground, serves as a living mulch to keep weeds down around corn as it grows tall to provide a trellis structure for beans. 
Beans are nitrogen fixers, and they contribute nutrients back to the soil, helping both corn and squash, which are hungry plants. The fourth sister never mentioned is mycorrhizae, the fungus living in the soil that helps beans fix nitrogen from the air. Scientist and Native American author Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her book Braiding Sweetgrass, talks about the Three Sisters Garden and its importance to Native peoples. She describes how a Cherokee friend gave her a gift of seeds of corn, beans, and squash. She wrote, I hold in my hand the genius of indigenous agriculture, the Three Sisters. Together, these plants, corn, beans, and squash, feed the people feed the land, and feed our imaginations, telling us how we might live. The Three Sisters technique is the simple kind of genius that I personally live for. Kimmerer goes on to describe the difference between indigenous agriculture and that of the new settlers. For millennia, from Mexico to Montana, women have mounded up the earth and laid these three seeds in the ground, all in the same square foot of soil. When the colonists on the Massachusetts shore first saw indigenous gardens, they inferred that the savages did not know how to farm. To their minds, a garden meant straight rows of single species, not a three-dimensional sprawl of abundance. And yet they ate their fill and asked for more and more again. I grew corn as part of a three sisters garden a few summers ago in my suburban backyard in West Knoxville. And despite a strong windbreak from our fence, I got some pretty nice ears. Corn needs space to grow effectively because it's pollinated by the wind. It's typically recommended to grow corn in blocks a minimum size of four feet by four feet, but preferably much larger. There are so many varieties of corn, but the heirlooms are by far the most interesting to me. You can find varieties in a range of colors from yellow or white to red, blue, purple, or multicolored gem varieties. Plant corn from seed a few weeks after the last frost date in spring. Keep weeds down around your corn plants with a mulch of straw. If you're growing the three sisters, plant your corn seeds first and let the plants get a few inches tall before planting beans. Then plant squash seeds after the bean plants emerge. Corn doesn't need a huge amount of water, but water it if there's a dry spell of two weeks or more. After the silks appear on your ears of corn, they should be ready to harvest in a couple weeks. The ears are usually ready when the silks begin to turn brown on top. If you don't have space for a full-size corn, you can grow a short variety with small ears. I've done this in my garden using Luther Hill sweet corn seed I got from Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Though this heirloom isn't from the South, it's originally from New Jersey. The three to four foot corn stalks make a fun addition, even if they don't produce much corn. So back to that song, will corn grow on Rocky Top? If we're talking the original, the one God made in the Great Smoky Mountains, it's highly unlikely, as those peaks are indeed quite rocky. It doesn't really matter anyway, though, does it? We all know that song is really about moonshine. For Tennessee Farm Table, I'm Kelly Smith Trimble.
Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.